Welcome to episode two of the Independent Intel Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Kimbui Bomani, back yet again for week two. And we have a variety of topics to touch on in the NBA and NFL sports spectrum. We have my take on Paul George's current contract extension that happened the week prior, the ongoing James Harden trade carousel, and are the Pittsburgh Steelers for real as a playoff team? They've lost two in a row. And then last but not least, we're going to touch base on the New England Patriots' gradual rebuild. But first, we have to start off with the topic at hand. It's been widely renowned as a very intriguing one at that in the NBA sporting world. It's the nuance of Paul George's current contract. And, you know, Paul George is an intriguing individual, not just as a player, but as a person. He's one of those players in the league that has been through a litany of things. We all know about his very calculated dating lifestyle that's been widely renowned. Most popular on social media airways are the fact that he had a little bit of an altercation in terms of the dating world crisis between him and Doc Rivers' daughter, which made it also ironic when the Clippers went out of their way to trade for Paul George. Nine times out of ten, had to condone Doc Rivers' signed offing, and it did, along with Kawhi Leonard's lasting blessing. And here we are with George. Beyond what he's done off the court, on the court in particular, we know that he's a player in the past decade, heading into the 2010s. He was the competitor of LeBron James when he was on the Miami Heat. Bright future with the Indiana Pacers. His ceiling was at the utmost high. He could do no wrong. He had challenged LeBron and the Heat twice in the conference finals. Came off on the losing end of the stick. But he challenged them nonetheless. And it seemed like it was smooth sailings from there. He had the catastrophic leg injury in the USA basketball scrimmage. And I think 2014, he was never truly the same. And that was the beginning of his beginning of the end of his tenure with the Indiana Pacers. He then segued to becoming an Oklahoma City Thunder in a trade where the Pacers sent him to OKC in exchange. They got Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis. His stint with the Thunder was a two-year stint that had highs and lows. His last year with the team, he was an MVP candidate and before he eventually flamed out in the playoffs against Damian Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers. This led to him being traded yet again to the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard's blessing was a huge part of that as he was deciding between L.A. and the Toronto Raptors. And he told the Clippers, you know, I'll come if you help make the Paul George transaction a reality so he can be my partner in crime as we look to contend out West and try to obtain the Western Conference Championship. And here we are. George's prior year with the Clippers, it was pretty, pretty disappointing the last time we saw him play. He shot 25% or worse in nine postseason games. The third most of any player in the shot clock era. This is in his career. But most importantly, his loss to the different Nuggets in Game 7 of the Western Conference Semifinals, otherwise known as the bubble playoffs. He committed five turnovers in that game while making only four baskets, and he was 0-6 shooting in the fourth quarter. He's calculated that that performance in retrospect, according to George, was his responsibility in terms of, well, not his responsibility, but he never really truly owned up to his dismal play, but it was dismal nonetheless. And he was a free agent coming into the last year of his contract in terms of being a free agent next offseason. And a lot of people expected him along with Kawhi Leonard, whose deals kind of coincide with one another, to kind of play out the second to last year of the contract opt out to get more money george decided to opt all the way in in terms of being all in on the clippers and sign his extension the year before he truly could become a free agent so what is paul george as a player at this point in his career well he's a very multi-talented two-way guy that has had a propensity to succumb to the lowest levels of ineptitude in the postseason and this is something we can't ignore and while Kawhi leonard did pretty much his greatest feat yet to kind of carry his Clipper team that kind of performed below average during the bubble playoffs. His lowly stint in game seven pretty much cemented the Clippers' fate because throughout the series, it was shown that George was very low. He didn't have very consistent high-level performances in the postseason. Montrez Harold, when he came back from his, uh, you know, situation with his grandma who died, coming back from her funeral, he never really went back to that six-man-of-the-year performance status that he had streaking into the postseason Lou Williams had the lemon pepper wing situation and when he came back into the bubble he was never truly locked in and on a point guard spectrum where point guard was never really their highest level of strength at any type of basketball position on the roster 
Patrick Beverly was injured. He's just starting point guard. He had leg problems. And so George is going to be that Robin to Kawhi's Batman. So where when the Batman didn't have it going, Robin could swoop in and pretty much save the day for a game. And George couldn't do it not only for a game, but he couldn't provide that consistent level of productivity for a series. And so the fact that the Clippers went all in on him makes sense. They mortgaged pretty much their whole future for Paul George. Five first-round picks, I might add, as well as the player rights of Danilo Gallinari and Shai Yildiz Alexander. They've done it all. They've mortgaged everything. So it's not surprising that they went out on a limb and said, you know what, we're going to extend our foreseeable future into George to do a couple of things. One, convince Kawhi to stay because Kawhi was the main reason why Paul George joined the Clippers. He was a guy that he vouched to play with, was he vouched to play with as being the only way he would join the LA Clipper franchise. And then the second reason could possibly be that if it doesn't pan out with George and the Clippers, they can mortgage his contract to someone else in a future trade deal down the line to get back the propensity of draft picks that they no longer have because they mortgage all of them for PG. Now, what does it mean for Paul George? It gives him financial security. And this is what a lot of athletes in all vast league concepts that we know, whether it's NBA, NFL, MLB, um, even on the minor league or G League level, everybody wants to be paid at the highest amount of salary, but not just the highest amount of dollar bills from a contract perspective in terms of what we see, but they want to make sure that that financial security known as guaranteed money is supremely bad. And George, he got that. And he's 30 years old. And at this point, ever since his catastrophic leg injury in the USA basketball scrimmage back in the last decade, he's had a tendency to be injury prone. Shoulder injury, Oklahoma City, um, and that carried over to the LA Clippers. He never truly fully recovered from that for a while in the first half of the season. And then prior to that, you know, he had those, you know, continuous leg injuries, scares, constant nagging in the lower extremity of his body, which could be a microcosm of him struggling or his body struggling to recuperate from that destructible injury that pretty much saw his career flash before his eyes. And so here the Clippers are. And so at this point with the LA Clippers, they've locked in on Paul George for the foreseeable future. They've locked in on Ty Lewis, their head coach. And all signs point to the fact that Kawhi Leonard is probably going to take the deep plunge and stay in his home state and continue to play for the Clippers beyond not just this year, but several years to come. For this team to be a finals championship team, both of those stars are not only going to have to play consistent regular season games to formulate continuity, not, with, not just within themselves, but within their teammates. They're going to have to play well as a collective in the postseason. And Paul George's playoff track record has been very, very sketchy ever since the Indiana Pacers blew up their Eastern Conference final core back in 2015. When he's been the sole proprietor or the second sole proprietor in terms of company success, he hasn't got it, it done on the basketball floor. And that's very alarming. And he's the type of guy that possesses all the innate skills to be a very skillful and productive offensive player when it comes to most. Great jump shot, great grace around the basket, immense dribble moves, and immense creativity to be able to get by the first initial on-ball defender and weave by the secondary defenders around the basket to score buckets. We know what he's able to bring to the table, and we know what he can truly be as an offensive talent. It all comes down to will George be able to correlate it all together? And, you know, he's taken a plunge. He said all the right things. He says at this point he owes the L.A. Clippers a championship. But actions speak louder than words. We know that saying. That saying's been very well-regarded and well-known throughout the NBA spectrum. And at this point for George, it's all about getting it done from a consistent level. And so Larry constructed his contract this way to coincide with George's contract to see if George was truly the superstar he wanted to play with for years to come. And if the Clippers would coincide with treating him well by ensuring that they had the back of Paul George as well when it comes to contract situations. Now, Kawhi is a big part of this deal being a success or a failure. And that all coincides with, does he want to resign? And George's play at a very porous level was saw not just by fans, social media analysis, you know, analysts that, you know, populate all various aspects of the world. It was also shown by Kawhi Leonard, too. He had a front row seat of seeing how low of a performer Paul George was at the postseason level. And Kawhi is probably calculating the situations for what it is. He's probably looking at last season as an anomaly, maybe, 
due to the fact that the situation within the NBA world was kind of similar to the situation throughout the American society, not only then, but now. We're all in a bubble. We're all in a bubble in terms of being one against COVID, the battle against COVID. And Paul George is very vocal about saying that it was a struggle to play in the bubble as a basketball player because it neglected him from the chances of being able to be out and about in the street and see his family and be able to get to and fro his customary ideal situations when things just aren't great on the basketball floor. Instead, when George was at his lowest on the floor, he couldn't go back home to the common aspects of life that he was accustomed to. He had to go back to a bed in the Disney World Resort known as Orlando, Florida, but a bed nonetheless that was very, very close to the floor that he continuously succumbed to low-level performances. He couldn't hide from his ineptitude on the floor. He was always in front of it. He always succumbed to it. He's always confronted it on social media, various outlets, on the internet. That's all he could see, and he had no escape. So Kawhi maybe looked at that situation and was like, you know what? Paul George didn't play at his greatest because of the scenarios that we were in, the times we were in. Maybe in a place known as this season's playoff or regular season situation in the NBA, where it's still a little bit weird. There's no fans and whatnot, but he's able to go to and fro as he pleases. And he's going to be able to play in the confines of a more relaxed situation. Maybe he'll be able to level up his play like he promised. And this is somebody I can plunge a deeper investment towards in the near future. But if he does not, and if he continues to show propensity to be a truly shortcomer in terms of playoff productivity, Kawhi is going to look at the situation and be like, this is something that he can't coincide with at all for the near future. And I wouldn't be surprised if Leonard and his team pulls the plug on not only George as being a sidekick, but on the Clippers organization as being a team he can win with and decides to take his talents elsewhere next summer in free agency. Speaking of free agency, speaking of next summer, well, not speaking of none of those things in particular, because we have a current thing that's truly occupying the status of James Harden. The Houston Rockets decorated all NBA talent has been a huge part of making the Rockets relevant since he was traded to Houston around the 2012-2013 season. Now, Harden wants to be rid of the situation that he has succumbed to in Houston. He wants to be traded. And the feeling is, after he didn't work out with his best bro, Russell Westbrook, it seems like that was the final straw. You know, maybe in the past, for Harden, when he was with the Rockets, when he played with, played with Dwight Howard, when he played with Chris Paul, those are two guys that he knew had the credentials to coincide with them successfully because they were all NBA talents. But he didn't have a companionship with them off the floor. No internal people-type vibe where they could just look at each other and just connect or talk to each other in any type of way and there were no hard feelings. So maybe he thought the personality perspective in terms of relatability and continuity on an intellectual and emotional level wasn't there. Maybe he thought that was the reason why it didn't truly work out on the floor, not just the aspect that maybe he as an ISO scorer didn't coincide with the gameplay of Howard, who wanted to be a post scorer at the time, and Chris Paul, who was also a point guard, ball-dominant point guard that, that they need the ball to be just as effective in Dan Tony's offense. So he decides to say, you know what? I'm going to get my best friend, Russell Westbrook. Who cares that he is also a boy dominant point guard? Who cares that he also has a tendency to take a high volume of shots and seclude every other aspect of team play and team ball on the floor so he can get his? Who cares because we're best friends and we've always been best friends since we've been growing up in the California area. And then when that didn't work out because... Obviously, the gameplay aspect on the floor wasn't translatable. Their friendship translation on the floor didn't prove to be productive either. They're boys. But when it comes to being boys on the floor, in terms of hitting a rough patch through the game and working through it, it seems as if Westbrook was the only voice of reason and Harton refused to listen to any type of criticism from his best friend. And if he doesn't want to take criticism from his best friend, who's to say he's taking any type of criticism from the coaching staff? Not saying the coaching staff provided any, because Dan Tony's offensive system, since he got there to when he left, was give the ball to James Harden, ISO it up, everybody standing four corners, except maybe the big, clear the lane for Harden to go to work, to decide, does he want to step back and take a three, or put the ball on the floor and kick it out to a wide-open teammate, or draw a foul. So Harden's done with Houston. Houston, they've tried. They've, they've tried to change his mind to keep him in H-Town. They've got John Wall, 
who's also a ball-dominant point guard that resembles Westbrook in terms of he can't shoot. So, obviously, if it didn't work with Westbrook, why would it work with Wall? Harden's not amazed by that. They've got a previously all-NBA talent known as Boogie Cousins, but he's recovering from two catastrophic knee injuries towards Achilles and his ACL in about a span of 8 to 12 months. So, while he's kind of slowly coming back and has shown flashes in the preseason of being a productive player, in terms of what he once was, there's no guarantee that he's going to continue to stay healthy throughout the season. So Harden's not interested in that. And the only places Harden's interested in right now are four choices on his James Harden trade list. Yes, Brooklyn. He has the Philadelphia 76ers. He has the Milwaukee Bucks. And he has the Miami Heat. Now, all four teams provide very intriguing aspects in terms of ideal situations that would allow Harden to continue to play his style of basketball, as well as his style of basketball equating to deeper postseason runs with the inevitable potential of possibly competing for the Larry O'Brien trophy. Now, let's break all four of these potential places down in my listing order. We're going to go with Brooklyn. Now, Houston says Brooklyn is off the table. And for lack of better terms, we're going to act as if they're not off the table. But in all reality, they kind of are. And the main reason why Houston puts them off the table is because the Rockets want an all-star slash all-NBA caliber player in return for James Harden. Now, does Brooklyn possess that? They do. They have two, KD, Kyrie. Brooklyn doesn't want to pull the trigger in terms of trading KD or Kyrie for James Harden, mainly because both of those individuals were a package deal in the season prior to the other season's free agency. In the 2020, 2019 free agency, summer free agency of 2020-2019. In that span, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were a package deal for the Brooklyn Nets. Kyrie Irving decided he wanted to go to Brooklyn. KD and Kyrie had already decided during the All-Star break of that same calendar year that they wanted to play with each other. So ultimately, Kyrie was going to dictate where they were going to play at, and KD would follow suit. Since they have come into a package deal, and they're finally healthy enough to play together on the floor this season, there was no way Brooklyn was going to betray KD's or Kyrie's wishes by trading one or the other to get a new guy in. The only way Harden was going to join the Nets is if those two guys weren't a part of the negotiating tactic. Since they need to be a part of the negotiating tactic, according to Houston, we don't know if Houston's playing hardball or not so far early in this trade negotiating sector. Those two guys have to stay. But if James Harden didn't have to come, Brooklyn would obviously have to get rid of Dinwiddie, Karis LeFert, Jerry Allen, litany of first-round picks. But from a basketball sense, would James Harden fit on the Brooklyn Nets? Of course he would. He would be their point guard. Kyrie would, Kyrie would consume a more off-ball shooting guard duty, and Kevin Durant would continue to be the wing that gets his points in the floor of the offense. Boylan kind of gave a preview of how they were going to run their offensive structure this season with Spencer Dimwitty being the lead guard, setting up everything else for everybody within the starting five. Kyrie's Duty as a scoring guard in the backcourt is to be just that, a scoring guard, a shooting guard in particular. Every time he touched the basketball in the preseason, he never passed. His intentions were very, very clear. It was to get the ball, go to and fro in terms of where he's trying to pick his spots and score at a very high clip. And he did that in the preseason. My only worry is if the shots aren't falling for Kyrie Irving, is he willing enough as an individual talent to detour from being a score first guard and try to impact the game in a litany of ways, such as defending, assisting, um, things of that nature. And Durant, like he did with Golden State, is going to continue to get his points in the floor of the offense. Now, when push comes to shove and he feels like there's kind of a sense of offensive stagnation, he's going to also go back to what he does, bitch, which is be one of the more efficient ISO scorers in NBA history. But James Harden would be a perfect fit there. He would take Dinwiddie's role as the point guard. And what Harden has shown an ability to do throughout his career is play the point guard position at a very high clip, as well as be able to be the distributor to a litany of stars at the shooting guard spot and at the wing spot, because he did it during his times at OKC, where he was a six man that would come off the bench and play clutch time minutes in the latter stages of the fourth quarter under the head coaching tutelage of Scotty Brooks. But it's not going to happen. Brooklyn doesn't have the all NBA slash all-star pieces that they are willing to give up to get James Harden. A team that possibly may happen in all reality are the Philadelphia 76ers. And they have an individual named Ben Simmons. Now, Ben Simmons is a unique talent. 
He's a huge talent that can't shoot the basketball. Now, he has been able to shoot the basketball since he's come out of LSU. And his narrative behind not being able to be a good shooter is he doesn't need to shoot because he's gotten away from not being able to shoot at a high clip throughout his basketball career and has delivered a very high level of success. And he's right in a degree since he's been in the NBA. He's always been in the conversation for all NBA honors. And while he hasn't been an all NBA first, second, or third teamer, he has been a part of defensive all NBA teams. He's won the rookie of the year. You know, he's participated in all-star festivities. Ben Simmons is an all-world talent. And we bring up his name to a variety of coaches and NBA league councils. They'll say he's an all-NBA talent. And Houston knows he's an all-NBA talent, and they want him. Now, Philadelphia doesn't want to pull the trigger right now. They want to see how Simmons and Embiid coincide with one another under the new head coaching directory known as Doc Rivers. Now, Doc Rivers, this will be his fourth coaching stint in his career. Well, fifth, if you include the Orlando Magic. But the fourth most recent that a lot of people can recollect is part of that Boston team that won a championship with the big three. Dean went to the LA Clippers. And, oh, actually, it's really four. I'm Because mentally, I'm thinking the LA Clippers are two different teams because they were three different teams that Doc coached. He coached the Chris Paul DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin team. Then he also coached the Tobias Harris, Danilo Gallinari, Pat Bev, Lou Williams team. Then he coached the Paul George, Kawhi Leonard Clipper team. He's coached three versions of the Clippers. And all versions of the Clippers have more or less made the playoffs, but haven't done anything productive in terms of advancing beyond their franchise history's normal postseason trajectory, which is known as the second round. So, This isn't anything new for Doc Rivers, coaching a new team, coaching a litany of all-star caliber talents and trying to make them reach a level of success that they haven't been able to do in their careers. And so what he's allowed Ben Simmons to do so far, we'll see how it works, is to be a point guard. He's not in armor with his ability to shoot or not shoot. He doesn't care. He wants him to lead the offense. He wants him to be the conductor now for, he wants him to drive to the basket. He wants him to play big, but he also wants him to be able to put his head down and get his 6'10", 230-plus bodily frame into the paint, attract defenders, driving kick to the litany of shooters that they have on the roster, otherwise known as Seth Curry, Mike Scott, Hurricane Korkmaz. You know, we'll see how he's able to get the best out of Tobias Harris, and he wants Joel Embiid to be more of a big-time factor in the post. So what it seems as if Dow Rivers is doing is he's going to make his big-time players, who are 6'10 and 7 feet respectively, play bigger than what they've done in the past. No more straying away beyond the perimeter and settling there, but exerting their force, their frame, and their impact down low because their bodily physique and their gameplay has proved such can be very productive if they do so. Now, we'll see how this translates. I think Philadelphia is probably going to give it to around the All-Star break if they aren't a top three seed in the East that has shown a productivity in terms of being able to have Simmons and Embiid coexist together to where it translates to big-time wins against big-time competition, not just in the East, but throughout the league, then, you know, Ben Simmons is gone. But if they are able to tread water, be productive, coexist with one another, and get the X amount of results that they want, there'll be a success story and things will work out in itself. But that is a team, in my opinion, that the Boston Celtics, that the Brooklyn, well, not even the Brooklyn Nets, that the Houston Rockets, I might add, should look into and make sure to keep their ear out for the best possible deal for them. And they've already said that their starting point is Ben Simmons and three first-round picks. I think that's fair. I mean, you know, you would normally expect maybe what was being rumored was an all-star caliber talent and another quality player. So what a lot of people thought was Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris, but those contracts are too immense. They already got John Walsman's contract on the books. So they will only be able to probably willingly take another big contract, and that's about it. So Ben Simmons for three first-round picks. I don't know how Houston would make that work from a basketball standpoint if they have Simmons and Wall on the roster. But, you know, if it does work out for Philly, I consider it James Harden is a better player than Ben Simmons if he's your lead guard with Tobias Harris on the wing and Joel Embiid inside. That's more of a productive big three that could possibly translate into championship success in the NBA. The Miami Heat. Now, the Miami Heat are another team that were on James Harden's list, and they were overachievers last season. They did it with Jimmy Butler, 
as their best player. And their second best player arguably being a tie between Bam Adebayo in some playoff series, Tyler Hero, and Duncan Robinson. Now, I like all of those guys, but let's be real. Jimmy Butler is a talented individual, but he's probably their best on-ball offensive creator on their team. And when I mean best, I kind of mean most consistent. Outside of that, you're picking straws. Now, Goran Dragic is a solid player, but he's not what he used to be. He's still productive, but he's you're not going to get the Goran Dragic from the Phoenix Suns, who has the speed, quickness, and craftiness to get you a consistent 19 to 20 points a game. The Heat see the writing on the wall, and at first, the feeling was they wouldn't want to against Tyler Hero for James Harden. Now they're saying they're interested. I don't think that's enough, though. Wouldn't be surprised if Houston says, give us Hero and Bam. But if it's just Hero, another, you know, veteran or young caliber player on the roster and a couple of free agency picks, I'd make it happen because James Harden on that gritty, tough-nosed, tough-knit Miami Heat team could also put them back into finals consideration because as great of a player as Jimmy Butler is, just doesn't have that consistent offensive firepower from a guard position that James Harden has. And if James Harden is able to provide that and Butler is able to maybe more so coincide with being a rough-nosed traditional 3 and D guy instead of being the two-way shot creator defensive stopper that he had to be for the Miami Heat last season, works out for both sides, they'll be able to compete for a championship. It ultimately comes down to, does Pat Riley want to incorporate James? Most times, other than not not consistently playing defense, Harden into a very tough NBA culture that's been widely known as heat culture. And the Miami Heat culture is a tough one. They get at you in practice. They get at you and challenge you in-game, on the sidelines, after the game. Udonis Hasm is their vocal leader who's still in the league. And while he doesn't present the talent that he used to because he's an aging veteran, he's that voice that's always going to push even the best player on the team to be the best they could be on the floor. It's hard and going to be able to buy into that for a full season. I don't know because he really hasn't had that tough nose, hard nose, challenging coaching at all in his career. Even when he took a, even when he had a lesser role with the Oklahoma city thunder, Scott Brooks never came across to me as a hard nose, tough coach. Spolster is going to demand you to play your best because he's been raised within that culture to do so. And it's interesting to see is James Harden going to coincide with that for not only the betterment of his career success, but the betterment of the teams and the team's success story as well. And last but not least, the Milwaukee Bucks. And before we continue, I'd like to give Giannis Antetokounmpo a huge round of applause, man. He, he did it. Giannis Antetokounmpo is now a Milwaukee Buck for the foreseeable future. He signed the extension that a lot of star caliber players that have been in his position in the past didn't do. He did it. Five years, $228 million extension. He's a buck for sure. And the team around him still isn't enough for, I think, Giannis to win a championship anytime soon. And so now that the Bucs know for sure that Giannis is here to stay, I think it would be wise of them to further facilitate themselves into the James Harden sweepstakes. And what it's probably going to take is Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez, and a few picks. And I do it if you're able to keep Drew Holiday. Because if you're able to keep Drew Holiday and had James Harden and play him at the one and allow Giannis to present himself as more of an interior post player than what he's wanted to present himself and what the books have wanted to be wanted him to be presented as in the last X amount of years since he's been on the team, everybody wins. Because I think it opens up Mike Budenholzer's offensive system even more, having a dynamic guard that's a threat to put it on the floor to score and a threat to put it on the floor to pass. Everybody wins. You're able to keep your best defensive backcourt mate Really keep Harden in the front court. I mean, not in the front court, in the back court too. He'll be your lead guard. Now, granted, the way the Bucks are set up, kind of like the Utah Jazz as well, they have a very talented young player that's nearing his prime. But his pre-prime years have been so dominant, you can consider that as his prime as well. But around the almost in their prime young superstar NBA player is a litany of elder statesmen in the league. Chris Middleton is 27, 28-ish, but Brooke Lopez is in his 30s. Drew Holiday's in his 30s. Uh, DJ Augustine coming on benches in his 30s. They have a lot of guys that are in their 30s that are going to demand big minutes and be expected to provide an immense big-time impact at their age. 
meaning wow, they'll provide a, how do I put it, a more direct sense of productivity in the now. Two or three years down the line, what will they have? And so if you're going to go all in right now to win a championship with your best player, you got to ensure that you, if you have a chance to get somebody as a dominant player at an all-pro apex, you go for it. And James Harden's a guy I would go for. And the Milwaukee Bucks wouldn't be given anything detrimental, I feel. What I documented, in fact, was Middleton, DiVincenzo, and the litany of first-round picks. And so if you do a deal like that, you're able to keep Drew Holiday. You're able to have James Harden be your point guard. Giannis can kind of present himself as a traditional four or five because, in my opinion, the way he plays, the way he's built in prior NBA times, he would be a traditional four. Um, and it's and I've, what I've seen him do so far in the preseason, his jump shot ability has somewhat improved, which is promising. But if you allow him to play close to the basket to where he won't have to drive against bracket defensive coverages with his limited dribbling ability on the perimeter, he won't have to shoot over contested hands away from the basket, which isn't his strong suit yet. You allow him to play near the basket to where he can utilize his length, his strength, and his agility against a bigger, more laterally quickness deficient opposing bigs. That allows him to be successful at the highest clip, and it also allows the Milwaukee Bucks to be successful at the highest clip. So these are the four teams. Obviously, we're going to see what happens with Harden. He's under contract for the next two years. So ideally, Houston could keep him this year, see how it works with the team this year, and if it's something that they get the most that they can, which is get to a conference final, it doesn't work out for the organization. That's finally the last straw that they've had in terms of competing for a championship. They can trade him. Because now with Giannis off the market, um, next year's frenzy class is a little bit bleak. Giannis and Paul George were expected to be there. They're no longer there since they signed their extensions with their respective teams. There's a chance Kawhi could be the biggest fish on the market, but there's no guarantee there. AD and LeBron will be there because they locked up themselves, the LA Lakers, for the foreseeable future. So James Harden would then become, if you put him on the trade block, the biggest free agent in the summer. And so if you do that, if you're Houston, you're going to get even more economical compensation than you've ever dreamed of, especially during a time where next year's NBA draft, arguably the most deepest from a talent perspective in recent years. So if I'm Houston, do two things, three things. I think thing number one is play the season out. Play the season out to see how everything kind of formulates itself into being with this team. If it works out for you guys, cool. If it doesn't, that's also cool. Make the move to transition to something else. If it does work out and you win a championship, that's even better. Still make the move. I think suck dry the most you can out of hard and stint here. And then when it fully combusts itself into never moreness, then you make the pivot to something else. And when you make the pivot to something else in terms of trading him in the offseason, going to have a line of picks you can choose from. That's one. Two, another thing I would consider is trade him to Milwaukee Bucks before the season starts. You get Middleton, who is nearing his prime. You get a young guard in DiVincenzo. And imagine an offensive line with Walter Point, Middleton as your two. You have Eric Gordon as your three. On the four, you have Christian Wood. At the five, you have Cousins. Or maybe you want to put Gordon at the two and have Middleton play the three. That's a solid starting five in the Western Conference that can get you a top five seed in the playoffs. You can maybe win a playoff series, but that's about it. So you stay competitive for one more year for the sake of your fan base. And then you make the swift but needed transition to a rebuild. And then number three, if you still want to stay Middly competitive, but have an attractive sword that you could sell to H-Town, you go for Ben Simmons. I don't know the logistics in terms of basketball, how those guys in terms of Wall and Simmons, since they both have long extended contracts, coexist. So my opinion is if they get Simmons, then more often than not, they're going to trade Wall when the opportunity presents itself to free up more cash space to formulate a team suited around Ben Simmons' strengths. So we'll see where that goes. James Harden. Respect your desire to demand a trade. You're a great NBA talent that recognizes the writings on the wall for your legacy to last a test of time. You got to win a ring. And knowing that Houston's ceiling has been established, has been complete, got to go somewhere else where you can achieve the ultimate prize 
in the National Basketball Association. Up next is Pittsburgh, a legit contender. Now, the Pittsburgh Steelers, before we go in depth in terms of how they came to be where they are currently, I predicted coming into the season they were going to be an 11-5 team. The reason why I said they were going to be 11-5 is because I did the law of simple averages. They were 8-8 eight eight the year prior with Mason Rudolph and Duck Hodges as their primary two quarterbacks. Their defense was elite and it returned that same defensive identity and talent to the next year. So with Big Ben coming back from elbow surgery and with their defense staying pretty much intact, I realized, you know what? Big Ben, better quarterback than the guys that they've had, even though I knew when he came back, the big question is, was he going to be the same vertical passer that he used to be a few years ago? Obviously, he's not. Since he's older, coming off of elbow surgery, you're not going to have that zip and that arm strength that you usually possess with age and surgery on your throwing arm. We get that. But nonetheless, he could still make the short, intermediate, and pinpoint accuracy passes that don't exceed around 20 yards more consistently than Mason Rudolph and Duck Hodges could ever dream of. So once that happened, once it was official, he was back. I'm like, okay, Big Ben can give the Steelers three more wins than what they had last year. That's 11, 11 and five. Not surprised. Main reason why I did this is because their schedule is really weak because the AFC North has had the gracious opportunity to play the NFC least, known as the NFC East, where all teams are all potential W's because all teams suck this year. They've had the, they've had that opportunity to play them. They've also had the opportunity to play the AFC South, which possesses two really bad teams in the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Houston Texans, and two semi-good but can be gotten on every given, given Sunday teams known as the Indianapolis Colts and the Tennessee Titans. So all those things being what they are, the biggest competition that they had was within their division. They had to be able to, in my opinion, beat Baltimore and make sure they kept Cleveland at bay to win a division, to compete in the division. But if they couldn't win a division, they'd at least keep them at bay enough to where they get 11 wins. I felt like that would be enough to win the playoffs. Not only are they at 11 wins right now, but that's enough to make a legit, run at the one seed and this is where we are with this team they're a great team uh well let me let me let me digress the pittsburgh steelers are not a great team i just made an error for all the viewers listening they're not a great team they're a good team but they're a team i expected when they went 11 and 0 i wasn't sold i wasn't surprised they went 11 games because that's what i predicted in the half coming into the year but i was surprised they went 11 straight they had a couple of close calls baltimore the first time they played them in baltimore should have beat them but Baltimore didn't because Lamar Jackson completely threw the game away with his inability to protect the football. That game. Um, there was another game where it was a little dicey against Dallas. They were able to dodge that against the Cowboys because Dallas's defense, although they played very well that day, still not a good defense. So late, Riley Bray was able to hit Ebron wide open in the red zone. And defensively, Pittsburgh's defense was able to bow up against Gary Gilbert, who was the Dallas's quarterback at that time. So they survived that, but as they got through their 11-0 stretch, they had a tough game against the Washington football team. They succumbed to them, and then they had a huge litmus test against the Buffalo Bills, who are the third seed currently in the AFC. They lost to them, too. Now, what has been the big-time issue with the Steelers? Well, their last three games, they haven't been able to crack over 70 yards rushing as a team. Now, I'm going to put it out there. Pittsburgh hasn't been able to run the football productively since Le'Veon Bell has left. She didn't resign him. They haven't. And their offensive line threw a huge hoopla when Le'Veon wanted to get paid because they felt like Le'Veon was being a diva about it. They felt like, yo, our job is a block for you. We're a big reason why you're in position to be one of the higher paid running backs in the league. When Pittsburgh offered them the initial contract, Le'Veon Bell didn't want it because the guaranteed money was an abomination in comparison to what he provided, not just as a runner, but a pass catcher too, not just out of the backfield, but split out wide. And since Le'Veon Bell has been no more with Pittsburgh, it's gotten so bad at running the football that I think this season when Le'Veon Bell was a free agent, not a free agent, but he was in talks of possibly being traded when he was still with the Jets, the Pittsburgh Steelers were interested in bringing Le'Veon back. Yes, they were down that bad. Because their offensive line, it's a little bit overrated as run blockers. I'm just being real. Now, granted, not all of it's on them. They have a running back in James Conner, who 
for a lack of better returns has proven that he's not a consistent bell cow because he can't stay healthy. And a lot of that is, a lot of that is dependent on his running style. There's a lot of times Connor has chosen to take on contact to provide, I think, a spark within himself and the team to showcase I'm a tough runner. I can run over everybody. When there's been times where he was better off being elusive and eluding an oncoming tackling defender, but, you know, that's his life. Now, back to the numerical aspect of why Pittsburgh is struggling on the ground. Well, let's go back to the two games that they lost. They had 21 yards on the ground versus the Washington football team. 21 yards rushing. That's not going to cut it. Then they had 47 yards rushing against the Buffalo Bills. So we get it. They haven't really been able to run the football consistently all season. Yet they've been able to win 11 games in a row, though. So in my opinion, one of the main reasons why they really lost is the turnovers. They had a crucial game-breaking turnover against the football team where they had the ball last, had a chance to weather the storm after Washington came all the way back to take the lead. Big Ben got tipped and, you know, picked off by, you know, a linebacker. And that, that's all she wrote. And against Buffalo, Pittsburgh was up. I think at the time, 3 nothing were they? Or it was it was somewhere in that nature. And they turned the ball over twice throughout the game. But they had a huge turnover, a pick six by Teron Johnson against Ben Roethlisberger. He threw a out route, and it just was a great break on the ball. You know, both Juju and Johnson both ran the route great. The problem is... When the cornerback also runs the route just as good as the receiver, nine times out of ten, it might go the other way. So turnovers have been huge. They haven't turned the ball over a lot. They've only had 15 turnovers in 13 games, which is pretty impressive. 29th in the league in giveaways. That, that's good. That's a good thing. But sometimes it's not about how many turnovers. It's about when you turn the ball over. And when you turn the ball over at the worst times, it can be a recipe for disaster. Now, if you look at these five games this season that they've ran for over 100 yards as a team, they ran all of those times in the first five games of the year against five opponents who then, who then at that point, weren't very good rushing teams. Now, the New York Giants are a very good rushing football team now, but week one coming into the year where everybody thought for sure them along with the Jets were probably going to be the two worst teams in football, Stewart's ran for a buck 41 on them. Then next week against Denver, who currently has the 27th ranked rush defense in the league, then ran for 109 yards. Then in week three against Houston, who has the 31st ranked rush defense in all of football, that is second worst. They ran for a buck 69 against them. Against the Philadelphia Eagles, who have the 24th ranked rush defense in the league, they ran for 136 on them. And against the Cleveland Browns, who have the eighth best run defense in the league. But as we all saw last night, when Lamar Jackson ran for a Monday night football record, 120-plus rush yards for a quarterback, that's a little bit misleading. They put 129 rush yards against them. So all that taken into account, their last eight games, only the Jacksonville Jaguars have allowed the Steelers to rack up 100 yards-plus rushing as a team, and the Jaguars are ranked 30th in the league in rushing. So what's the common numerical pattern here? Pittsburgh runs the ball very well against very poor run defenses. But when you have a run defense that's, for the most part, competent enough or stout they're gonna be rendered inadequate and they caught a buffalo bills team that struggled defensively throughout the year because they weren't healthy in the front seven they're starting to get healthy in the trenches now and it wasn't easy sledding running the football james connor when he's not out on the field rushing it productively for a linear reason such as he just can't get it going or he's injured they don't have the backups to hold water I like Benny Snell coming out of Kentucky. He just hasn't proven to be that tough in between the tackler, bell cow supplement rusher for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it got so bad. They had Anthony McFarland who started running the football against the Baltimore Ravens on um, the second time they played them. He was toting that rock. And, you know, when, when you get down bad, you get down bad. Now the wanted defense for the Steelers defense is going to be fine. I know Pittsburgh fans have been like the main reason why We've lost because our defense hasn't been 100%. And it hasn't. They've lost Devin Bush, but they've lost Devin Bush for a month now. And they've been able to retain their high level of success as a defense. But huge losses such as Bud Dupree may come back to bite them. Bud Dupree was the sack partner in crime with J, not J.J. Watt, but J.J. Watt's brother, T.J. Watt. He had seven and a half sacks. He had a career resurgence with the Steelers. And him not being on the field could be something that Pittsburgh has to give credence and worry to. But 
when they played Buffalo on Monday night, they didn't have Joe Hayden concussion, their best corner, and they didn't have their best middle linebacker in Vince Williams. That showed in terms of stopping the run because Buffalo was able to run for a hundred for a hundred and four yards on the ground. And it showed in coverage when Joe Hayden wasn't back there because in the second half, when Josh Allen was kind of struggling in terms of throwing the ball amongst the rush, even though he only got sacked once, you could see the push that Pittsburgh's front seven was able to provide. Allen said, the heck with it. I'm going to go to the best receiver on my team, Stephon Diggs. 10 catches, a buck 30, and a touchdown where he was pretty much bringing Cameron Sutton to school. He was schooling him. And Diggs, 100 catches on the season. I've been a huge Diggs fan since he was on the Minnesota Vikings. I thought he was a better receiver than Adam Thielen. Kind of not a popular take. Might not even be a popular take now since a lot of people can say, well, he's being targeted the most with the Bills. That's why he's having a higher clip of productivity than Thielen this year. Thielen has more touchdowns, but Stephon Diggs is that guy. He can run all the routes in the tree. He's dynamic after the catch. He's got pretty sure hands when he's locked in. And he's a threat that you have to take an account towards as a defense. And he plays at a very high level. So when I look at Pittsburgh, are they legit? Honestly, I don't think any team is legit enough to beat the cream and the crop in the AFC. That's the Chiefs. And I don't think Pittsburgh is legit because the issue isn't defensively as much because I feel like their defense is going to get healthy enough where it matters. They're going to get Hayden back eventually in the secondary. Vince Williams will be back soon enough. And Bud Dupree will be missed, but I think T.J. Watt will provide enough of a pass rush as long as, as well as Cameron Hayward up the middle for that to be a supplement. As we saw, they were still able to push the pocket and make Allen hurry his, hurry his throws and hurry his decision-making. The issue, though, that we can't ignore, Pittsburgh's offense, they can't run the ball particularly well. And since they don't have a vertical passing threat within their offensive system, largely because Big Ben is older and he hasn't been the same in terms of his zip out of the, his zip when it comes to throwing the football because of his elbow surgery. They're a underneath West Coast team and a way to kind of neutralize a West Coast passing attack, which we've seen throughout playoff history is you play press coverage against the receivers and you contest every catch opportunity that they have underneath or over the middle. And this is probably the main reason why Pittsburgh's receivers have been having a case of the dropsies. Now, they don't lead the league in drops, according to my research. They're in the top 10, but they do have a guy that does lead the league in drops on their team. His name is Deontay Johnson, who's actually their most targeted receiver at 113. But he's only caught 69 of those passes for 694. He's caught five touchdowns, but he also leads the league or tied in league lead with CeeDee Lamb with seven drops. And with Deontay, it's crazy. I see him make a, a tough contested catch one week, and then the next week he'll drop a routine crossing route. And and I think a lot of that is because as the weeks have gone on and on, they see it because their team, because their opponent sees it on film. They're getting more contested catches than ever before. And while they may be able to catch it at times, they get tackled immediately. And their offensive passing attack is predicated off of yards after catch instead of distant yards through the air. And when you're a receiver that's always looking over your shoulder as soon as the ball is coming to you to see what tackle I got to break off of to make a big play, there's a high chance you do lose concentration on the football and you do have a case of the dropsies. And he's not the only one. Juju Smith-Schuster has has had four drops this season and Eric Ebron, their tight end, who they've kind of featured a little bit more as the seasons went on within their offense. He also has four drops. So Big Ben, limitations as a passer. His receivers having a case of the drops is because they're facing even more contested coverage than usual in the past weeks, and their inability to run the football are going to be the ultimate downfalls. What do all of those things have in common? They correlate with the team's offense, and offensively, coming into the year, I acknowledge Pittsburgh is going to have trouble rushing the football because they don't have a true bell cow at the back position, and receiver-wise, they're going to be an underneath passing team, and that's going to work in the postseason, and not in the postseason, in, in the regular season to where they'll get the extra amount of wins that they need to get into the playoffs. But once playoff time comes, maybe they win a game playing that way. And from the looks of it, currently right now, they're the two seed. They will be playing the seven-seeded Miami Dolphins, who are one of the top premier defenses in the league. And if you don't play them, you play your rivals in Baltimore, who schematically match up very well with Pittsburgh because they have press corners and a very ferocious blitzing scheme where they can send four and get to you, or they can send the house. And so Pittsburgh has shown, even though they've beaten Baltimore twice, 
they've struggled against the Ravens defense to put up points. And I don't think that's a team they want to see. So we'll see what happens in there. In that perspective, I do think Pittsburgh defense is going to be the fortifying factor in terms of them making a long postseason run. It's their offense that's ultimately going to hold them back and send them at best two and done come postseason time. To wrap up the podcast, we're going to touch base on the gradual rebuild of the New England Patriots. And for New England, they're 6-7 and seven on the season. It's been a very predictable, disappointing season, to say the least. And it's been that because, you know, the Patriots just haven't had the quarterback play that they've had throughout the last two decades. Cam Newton, when he got signed by New England, a lot of people were happy. A lot of people had tremendous upside for him. Everybody was calling Bill Belichick a genius. I was even optimistic to a degree. He was a former MVP. Sure, he was coming off the soldier surgeries, but we all thought, hey, he had enough offseason to be able to get through that and rehab at the highest level and be able to practice enough to where it wouldn't have the rehab overlap into his practicing ability to throw the football. But then everything changed in week two. And I remember I was with my father watching the Patriots play the Seahawks. It was arguably Newton's best game of the season his last best game of the season, which is a sad sight to see. He threw a party on Seattle like a lot of teams have had, 400-plus yards, and he, he couldn't do anything wrong. But in that game, might have been his fifth or sixth throw, my dad pointed out, yo, Cam, um, what's up with Cam Newton's throwing motion? And it was different. It was like this weird, like, weird little wind-up where it was kind of like started from his – like the back of his shoulder and then he would exert a whole bunch of force to throw the ball now when you see him do that usually you're thinking oh it's gonna be a deep shot he uses that same throwing motion to complete any pass it can literally be a five yard out a 10 yard in a a 20 yard post it's the same motion which alludes to the fact that he hasn't recovered from shoulder surgery He, he just hasn't and that's very disappointing and recognizing that at week two, we all pushed it to the side because he was playing well. But as the season went on and then he went under the tent for COVID and then he came back from COVID and you just saw the decline of his play, you started to realize he just hasn't been the same. Now, he's had bright moments. Seattle game was cool. Played well enough to beat Buffalo, but then he fumbled late in the fourth. That cost him. Uh, he wasn't the reason why he lost to Houston, but he couldn't propel the team past the fact that their defense had one of their rare bad days. And so that's just been the dynamic of this Patriots offense. Newton hasn't played particularly well. He's thrown for 2,100 yards, five touchdowns, but he's thrown 10 picks. And although he's completed 66% of his passes, probably his highest completion percentage rating in his career, he's 6-6 six and six as a starter, and he's been more effective as a runner as of late than as a passer, and that's just very disappointing. Because while Noon does have 11 rushing touchdowns and 451 yards rushing, you can kind of tell the seasons went on. They're more confident of Newton in certain offensive schematic game plans to be an effective power runner downhill than they are for him to dropping back to throw. Now, his supporters have said, look at the weapons. Demir Bird leads the league in tie for the league league. Not the league lead, but he's tied for the team league in receptions with Jacoby Myers at 42. He's got a 566 yards, one touchdown. Nikhil Harry, who's been New England's bust of a first-round pick so far, 29 catches, 297 yards. He's, he's He hasn't been good either. My response to that is Cam Newton didn't have great weapons when he was in Carolina. Because Steve Smith was on his last leg. Kelvin Benjamin was that dude, but we kind of find out he was only that dude because Cam Newton always threw it to him all the time. And the year he won MVP, his best receiver was tight end Greg Olson, who was at the tail end of his prime at that time. So we've seen Newton play very well with very porous weapons. Let's just face the facts that the main reason why he's not played particularly well, because he just doesn't have the arm strength anymore to get the ball out there consistently. His throwing motions out of whack. Sometimes the passes get there on point, like he'll hit somebody on the numbers and you're like wow that's the cam Newton we know and then other times he's gonna miss him and while that's normally been the nuance of cam Newton throughout his career he's never been the most accurate passer but the biggest strength in this game was always his arm strength and if his shoulders out of whack and he's had a new different motion to where he can't line drive that bullet pass that was so accustomed to seeing 40 yards down the field like he used to what can you do for this team 
Defensively, New England can't stop the run. They can't rush the passer. But just like I thought, their secondary is very talented. So New England's starting this gradual rebuild. They're six and seven. Before they got Cam Newton, I thought they were a seven and nine team. When they got Cam Newton, I thought they were a nine and seven team. But I kind of figured there was a slim chance they could make the playoffs. But more likely than not, they weren't a playoff team. And it's kind of equated to everything I predicated coming into the year. I knew their strength in their defense with their secondary. They didn't have a competent pass rush because their best pass rushers were gone. You know, Dante Hightower is not there because of COVID. Uh, Kyle Villanoy is no longer there. Uh, Jamie Collins is no longer there. Like, those are their top sack getters. And they have a lot of these young guys. Chase Winovich is their leading sack guy with three and a half. But they only have 19 sacks this season. That's it's not good. And so the biggest thing for New England is Bill Belichick, as long as he's their coach, he's going to schematically scheme these guys to play at their highest potential possible. And because of that, and in large part because their division is somewhat weak, not as weak as years prior, because it seems as if the Dolphins have taken a substantial step forward in the one. So coming Buffalo, they've been trending upward the past two seasons. The Jets are the only team that suck. But because they do play in that division where they can catch guys lacking, and even though Buffalo's good, you can still see there's a mentality when they play Buffalo psychologically for the Bills to have, dang, like, we're really going to beat these guys? Not really supposed to because historically we've never been accustomed to, which is why they almost coughed it up, you know what I'm saying, against the Patriots uh, early in the year. But all that being said, they're in that division. They're going to be competitive because of it because Belichick is going to refuse to have those guys lose. But for them to be a playoff team, they're going to need these three things. They're going to need a quarterback because the quarterback isn't on the roster. Cam Newton's washed. Uh, Stidham, who's their backup. Jared Stidham, he's not that guy. And I was a Stidham fan coming out of Auburn. I feel like if he had a nice O-line around him and a solid core weapons, he could supersede those draft labels that he was getting coming out of Auburn. He hasn't. Um, New England's offensive line isn't as bad as what it used to be when Brady was there in his prime, which is kind of alarming that he's still just a little bit shifty and a little bit uncertain in the pocket. And then we all know about the history of Brian Warriors. So they need a quarterback. They'll be picking probably in the top 15. And – while Mel Kuyper's come out and said there's a possibility six quarterbacks could be taken, they'll probably be more so in the Kyle Trask, Trevor Lance, uh, not Trevor Lance, but Kyle Trask, Trey Lance, Mac Jones sweepstakes. And if Trey Lance is there, I'd pull the trigger. He's another typical North Dakota quarterback, kind of similar to Carson Wentz, um, big arm, athletic, uh, not a lot of huge film tape on him because he had that one great year. We didn't throw a pick and then he didn't, only played one game this year because of COVID, but he's got immense upside and prototypical quarterback features. It's an individual they should take a chance on. They need skill receivers on the outside. Nikhil Harry, you can give him one more year out of respect for the fact that you drafted him in the first round, but you got to operate under the fact that he's not the guy and he's on a short lease. You need another dynamic playmaker on the outside that's effective at receiver. You're not going to be in the Jamar Chase sweepstakes, but I've seen, according to what I've seen from an eye test perspective, this year's draft class is going to be very deep at wide receiver. So New England has no excuse to either with the 15th pick, if they don't go quarterback, get a talented wide receiver than they have had on their team. And they're going to need a more dynamic pass rusher. Look, they've got the DBs. If they trace the Fawn Gilmore, they do have two future cornerbacks that can hold it down for Bill Belichick with the foreseeable future. JC Jackson is second in the league in interceptions and Jonathan Jones has been solid. So you got your corners. Um, you have your safeties, Kyle Duggar, somebody that they reached on from a uh, lower division college, and it's worked out so far, according to the Patriots camp. So when Devin McCourty and Patrick Turner eventually shipped off and you get more assets for them, you got your safeties, you got your corners. You need pass rushers, man. You need them. Now, they, they got Josh Uche. You got Anthony Simmons. You got Chase Winovich from a year prior. That's cool. We know you run a 3-4. And I know from Belichick's defensive systematic system, they don't go out to glorify pass rushers within that scheme. It's more about guys that kind of stay in their lane and their gaps and they get pass rushed off of that, but they need a little bit more than what they have right now because you're leading sad guy this late in the year with three and a half. That's not going to cut it. Other than that, guys, this is the end of episode two of independent Intel. I hope you guys enjoyed this latest episode of the podcast next week. I'll be back with a new litany of topics. Hope you guys enjoy. And before I go, Hopefully, you guys have followed us on Instagram. Continue to listen to us on Spotify, Apple Pod, YouTube. 
We're trying to be on every platform. We're trying to do this every week in particular. Like I said before in the last episode, guests will be coming down the line, possibly in episode 405. We'll make sure to let you know those details in the future. Hope you guys like the way I was able to tap these propensity of topics and hope you enjoy. Peace.